Well, welcome uh, once again. If you don't know me, my name is Andy. I'm the tech director and a worship leader here. Uh, and I'm just so glad to have this opportunity today to be able to uh, just share with you, to worship alongside you, and look to God's word together. A welcome once again to everyone joining us online. We're so glad that uh, even though you're not here with us in person, that we can uh, just share in this time together, even from afar. Well, as we uh, are today, we are 24 days now into the new year, into 2021. I don't know about you, but uh, this is usually kind of the point of the year, uh, like a few weeks in, where I'm able to gauge uh, with myself whether or not uh, I'm going to be able to stick with my New Year's resolutions. Uh, we're kind of at the point where uh, it's either routine or it's not, uh, or I'm going to have to adjust uh, my goals to be able to actually accomplish something uh, during the year. We all know the feeling where we get to the end of the year and look back to January 1st and we're like, man, I had way too high of expectations for myself. Uh, you know, we didn't quite meet uh, our goals. Uh, we've got that feeling of disappointment that, uh, you know, maybe uh, your reading plan dropped off or you didn't go to the gym as many times as you were uh, expecting that you would uh, on January 1st. We've all been there. I'm sure we all know that feeling. As a side note, uh, can we just all collectively agree that we should get a pass for 2020 on our goals? You know, I mean, so much of life was uprooted. If we just made it through 2020, that should be enough, right? But that actually brings up a good point for us today. If we had all known on January 1st, 2020, the events that would take place, how uh, our lives would be changed so much by COVID and everything else, how would we have adjusted as we approached the year, as we anticipated those things? I can tell you, if I had known what 2020 would have turned out to look like, my perspective going into it would have been vastly different. Uh, the first thing I think of is that I would have appreciated uh, the days pre-lockdown and everything else a lot more. You know, the things like uh, going to a restaurant and not worrying about uh, wearing a mask or all of that stuff, uh, even how far you are standing apart from people in line in the grocery store. Uh, hindsight easily changes our views on how we would have spent our time or the things uh, we would have paid attention to uh, in the past. Hindsight makes it really easy to say these things. It is easy to say we would shape our lives differently if we knew what was coming in the future. And in today's passage, Jesus puts those words to the test for us. He talks about both our present reality as well as our future he speaks to the future that we can anticipate as followers of Jesus. And in doing so, uh, he tells us that our lives should be shaped as we anticipate that coming day. It's almost like uh, in this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the disciples, it's like uh, all of us kind of have some puzzle pieces, and then Jesus just gives the disciples a quick look at the picture on the box. But it is heavy stuff that we're going to be talking about today. It's uh, the day of judgment, of Christ's return, of so many things that will bring separation for those who are part of the kingdom and those who are outside of it. This is heavy stuff. And it's also stuff that, uh, if I'm honest, is hard to interpret. Uh, there are different views of some of the things we'll talk about today that are uh, opposing, but both really good interpretations. So I'm not going to pretend to say I have 
all of the answers to what we're going to be reading today, but I am going to talk about uh, the views uh, of scholars and theologians that seem to be uh, the most well-regarded, uh, and we're going to just work through it together uh, as we work through this passage. So let's look together. If you have your Bibles with you uh, or any way to access the Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 17, and we're going to be starting in verse 20. Again, that's Luke 17, starting in verse 20, and we're going to read through uh, the whole passage. I'll read it for us uh, right now. So starting in verse 20, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that's Jesus, answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, but do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, uh, as we look to this passage today, we just pray that you would help us uh, to appreciate the weight of your words, Jesus. As we anticipate this coming day, as we look towards it, uh, Lord, we pray that you would just help us, even in this moment, to grow together in faith. Lord, help us, equip us with what we need to remain faithful until that day. Lord, we love you. We look to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So as we look over this passage, as we look from start to finish, there's kind of a clear division between uh, two different parts. The first couple verses where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and then uh, the second half, uh, the larger portion where he's talking to the disciples. And he's saying kind of two different things to them. So we'll address uh, the Pharisees first. Verse 20 tells us that the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. The Pharisees, these Jewish uh, leaders, these experts in the law, knew that part of Jesus' ministry was talking about this coming kingdom of God. 
as we've studied the Gospel of Luke together, we've seen Jesus uh, talk about the kingdom of God a few times, and we've also seen uh, that when he interacts with the Pharisees, oftentimes uh, he will kind of take the expectations they have and turn them on their heads. And today's passage is no exception. Jesus replies to them, saying, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will people say, Look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. We don't get the exact question that the Pharisees asked, but the way Jesus answers uh, kind of leads us to believe that they were looking for signposts, for things where they could say, oh, that's where the kingdom of God is going to be. In other words, the answer they were maybe hoping for was uh, for Jesus to say, if you're hoping to find the kingdom of God, you need to put these coordinates in your GPS. And then you need to make sure to leave early in the morning. It's a long, long journey. Uh, you'll need to pack snacks and all of this stuff. Make sure you know, you're looking for the signs along the way. Oh, and if you hit the lake of fire, you've gone too far. That was an end times joke, in case you didn't catch it. Jesus basically tells the Pharisees that they're, they're asking the wrong question. They're wondering about the signs that will let them in on the coming of the kingdom. Instead, Jesus says that the kingdom is coming in ways that you won't observe. And here's the thing. The proof of this is that you're asking these questions when the kingdom of God is right in front of you. Here's the thing that the Pharisees simply cannot grasp above all. It is that they are looking at the king of the world. We tend to think about Jesus' reign as an entirely future thing. But when we do that, we fall into the same trap as the Pharisees here. To avoid this, we need to ground ourselves in the reality that Christ's kingdom is a reality right now. You might be asking, well, how does that work? We tend to think of it as a future thing, but what does it mean if Jesus is king of the world right now and he's reigning? Well, part of the problem we meet here is that we're tempted to bring our own assumptions about the kingdom uh, and what a king of the world should look like to passages like this. Um, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of the phrase king of the world as someone who uh, has a crown, who is reigning with an iron fist, who's making it known to all. Uh, I kind of picture him uh, as, as a harsh king, you know, making his reign apparent so that he can enforce it. But notice that's the opposite of the type of reign that Jesus is talking about in this passage. Instead of appearing in signs that were to be expected, the kingdom of God arrived on the scene in a lowly carpenter telling his buddies to go out and tell good news to people. It came in an unexpected, subversive way. It came in him telling them to go out and tell people the good news and that for them to share it with other people. And even today, we see the king the kingdom of God at work through the vehicle of the church, which doesn't quite feel like a kingdom, does it? But I'll tell you a truth that is as surprising today as it has ever been, and it is this. God has chosen to make his kingdom known on earth through his church. Jesus, the king of the world, wants to make his reign known through you and me. He taught his followers to pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we still pray and long for that to be true today. Lord, uh, make your reign known through us. 
The kingdom is here. Jesus therefore made it clear to the Pharisees that their assumptions about the kingdom were wrong. They were looking for signs, but Jesus was already making his reign known right before their faces. They were blind to the wonders of the kingdom that were right in front of them. May God open our eyes today to see how we might participate in the kingdom together. It's a present reality that we can be a part of. That is so cool. That blows my mind when I think about it. The fact that the kingdom of God that was initiated by Jesus is something that we're participating in right now as the church. So the kingdom has a present reality that we're participating in right now, uh, and Jesus makes that clear to the Pharisees. Um, But then he turns towards the disciples and tells them, so don't think about the kingdom just as a present reality. Don't overcorrect. Make sure that you know that there is a future fulfillment of it as well. You'll notice in the notes for this uh, message that the two main points of the sermon that I've given you are the kingdom is here, dot, 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 but we must faithfully anticipate its fulfillment. It's supposed to be a connected idea. I wanted to make it clear uh, from the pause between these two ideas that while we are waiting for its fulfillment, there is still stuff to happen right now, and it's part of that continuous reign of the kingdom. This future aspect of his reign is what uh, he focuses on with his disciples now. To break down this section, because it is a lot longer than the first couple verses where he was talking to the Pharisees, uh, I'm going to kind of give you four points to think of as we read through uh, the section. I didn't put these in the notes, but if you are taking notes, uh, I'd encourage you to write them down uh, as we work our way through. So, uh, the first point that we get in this section from verses 22 through 24 is this. It is that Jesus' followers should hold fast to what is true. Jesus' followers should hold fast to what is true. Continuing on in the passage in verse 22, it says, He said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go out and follow them. So as Jesus turns uh, to talk to his disciples, he's being super pastoral in this moment. He's caring for his disciples by anticipating the ways that they're going to be tempted to think incorrectly about the kingdom in in a very different way from what the Pharisees were doing. He's basically saying, I know that you guys are going to yearn for the days of my return. You're going to yearn for the days of the coming kingdom. I know there are days when it will feel so hard to go on that when deceptive voices say things like, Christ is here, come take a look, or Christ is going to show up in such and such a place, in such and such a time, you're going to be tempted to actually believe what they're saying. But you need to stand firm and hold fast to what you know to be true. You might be asking, well, what is the truth then, Jesus? And Jesus tells us in the next verse. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus' second coming, he's referring to himself when he uses that phrase, Son of Man, 
will be so clear, so obvious and glorious and amazing that you won't need someone to tell you that it happened. And of course, it would be. We know from Scripture that uh, Jesus' initial ministry, his initiation of the kingdom, basically, was when he was humbling himself, when he walked among his people to make it known. But his second coming is going to be so clear and obvious that you're not going to need a headline or someone to uh, provide a rumor about it happening for you to find it. It will be glorious and unmistakable. In a couple places in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we get a little bit of the picture. In chapter 24, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In, verse tw- or in chapter 25, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We're not going to find out about Jesus' return uh, from a headline or hearsay. There won't be any need for rumors. The king of the universe will be making his reign known for all. In the same way that lightning flashes across the sky and There's no mistaking it. Jesus knew his disciples would grow tired and weary as they yearned for his kingdom to come in its full power and to bring an end to the pains and struggles of this life. And of course, we yearn for that today as well. We were singing about it this morning when we were singing, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. We we want to dwell as close as possible to God. We yearn for that day where there will be unhindered connection with God. But we need to hold fast to the truth of what Jesus says here. We need to not fall into deceptive lies about the time or place of his second coming. In Mark 13, uh, Jesus tells his followers that no one, not even the Son, but only God the Father would know the time and place of its arrival. In faith, we must continue to anticipate his coming, but never in such a way where we actually negate Jesus' own words about its unknown time uh, and obviousness for all. So the first point of these four points in this section is that Jesus' followers need to hold fast to what is true. The second point that we get uh, in verse 25 is this. Jesus' followers should look to the cross in our suffering. Jesus' followers should look to the cross in our suffering. Verse 25 reads, But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I mentioned uh, how Jesus was being very pastoral in his words to the disciples earlier. And he, he continues that here, but just not in the most comforting way. This is where we begin to feel the true weight of what Jesus is saying to them. He did not want his disciples to stray from his words and believe deceptions about his return. But he also wanted to make sure that they understood that they needed to expect that suffering would precede glory. There would be suffering before that glory could ever happen. Christ's rejection, crucifixion, and death were not signs that the plan was off or that the plan was failing. In fact, 
They were expected and necessary in this plan of salvation that God was working out. In essence, Jesus is saying, my second coming will be obvious, so no need to worry about missing it. But you need to know that I will suffer and be rejected before any of that can actually happen. He calls his suffering to their attention, and I think it should be in our minds as well whenever we go through trials or sufferings in this life. When the days come when suffering heightens our yearning for Christ's return, Christ's words here beckon us to look to the cross. The cross reminds us when we are struggling in our faith that Jesus remained faithful to the end as he suffered on our behalf. The cross reminds us that Jesus is not some far-off God who promises sunshine and rainbows all the while we're going through the pains and struggles of this life, but instead he is a king who set aside his crown to stoop low enough to be cut down by this world so that with him we might be raised as co-heirs to glory. We are not promised a perfect life here. In fact, suffering is kind of a theme throughout uh, the Christian walk. We see it throughout uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, which we're right in the middle of right now. But the cross has given us a picture of us of a Savior who suffers with us, who suffered first for us, so that we would be able to anticipate the promise of resurrection. So our second point is that Jesus' followers are to look to the cross in our suffering. Continuing on to verse 26 and uh, the next few verses after it, we get our third point. And it is that Jesus' followers should be actively committed to God. We should be actively committed to God. This point comes from verses 26 through 30, which says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So in this section, Jesus references two figures from the Old Testament, Noah and Lot. Uh, two people who were saved from God's judgment of widespread sinfulness in their days. Now, when we, when we read this section, it can be easy to think that Jesus is simply talking about destruction brought on by sin. We could read it and think that he's just saying, now there's going to be so much destruction and then just this tiny minority, uh, just a couple people and their families are going to be spared. That's not the point that Jesus is making. To understand what he is actually saying here, we need to pay attention to both the things that Jesus is telling us about these stories, the, the details he's referencing, as well as the details that he's leaving out. So let's look at the details he gives. Basically, he describes the days of Noah uh, and the mundane activities, eating and drinking and marrying one another, that people were engaged in right up until the moment of destruction. He says, those are what the days of the Son of Man will be like. In a similar way, uh, in the days of Lot, people were doing uh, the mundane things of everyday life, eating and drinking, planting and building, right up until the moment of destruction. 
the days of the Son of Man will be like this as well. The notable details that he leaves out, though, are any mention of the widespread wickedness that brought about this judgment. If Jesus wanted to highlight that as his point, he could easily have said, uh, you know, I'm talking about sinfulness, about uh, the judgment for sin here. But instead, he describes the mundane activities of everyday life that everyone is caught up in, seems to be distracted by, when judgment, the serious thing, is breaking in around them. Jesus' point seems to be that his return will bring about judgment that is very sudden, breaking into the rhythms of everyday life that everyone has become used to. Because this is the reality that awaits humanity, we as followers of Christ need to be actively committed to God. The thing he's talking against here in this passage is being passive, being caught up and attached to the things of this life, so much so that we are not ready for his return. Just as it would be easy for followers to become deceived about lies of the coming of the Son of Man, so it would be easy for followers to become just passive in their faith, caught up in the mundane activities of life so much that they are distracted from the coming of the Son of Man. As we consider this section, I uh, would encourage you to have some self-reflection about it. Maybe ask yourself, how would my life look different right now if I wasn't following Jesus? If Jesus wasn't a part of the picture of your life, how would it look different? Would it be a sharp contrast? If you're not sure about this, it might be a good idea to take some time to consider why. As followers of Christ, we can't just live passively, becoming embedded within the world so that we don't shine a light for the world to see God's love and his grace and make his kingdom known in our midst. We need to be actively pursuing Christ each day, giving our lives over to the one who holds our future in his hands. Jesus' followers should be active, not passive. We should be actively committed to God. Moving on to our final point, uh, we see that Jesus' followers should incline our hearts towards eternity. Jesus' followers should incline our hearts towards eternity. Verses uh, 31 through 35 say, On that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. In this section, Jesus delivers kind of the last blow to uh, his disciples. When the day comes, there's going to be no chance to turn back. You're going to need to lose your life to keep it. The phrase he uses in verse 33 is recorded in various ways in other gospels, and uh, although it's used in different contexts, it's always pointing to this paradox that we find uh, that is central to our faith. The fact that in order for us to find true life, we need to first lose our life for the cause of Christ. 
We cannot cling to this life we know now. Instead, we need to incline our hearts towards the eternal reality that as Christ followers, we know to be true. Jesus says that when he returns, there must be no turning back to the things of this world. He references Lot's wife, who, when away, had been provided for her to go to safety. When she had uh, the deliverance within sight, she chose to take her eyes off of it and look back. Scripture doesn't really tell us why, but we can tell that her heart was not inclined towards the deliverance that God had provided. It was inclined towards something back there. And she was caught up in the disaster herself because of this. In remembering her, Jesus urges the disciples to choose a better path, to choose more wisely, to choose to remain focused on God. Then Jesus describes uh, a pretty chilly situation. He describes pairs of people going about their lives and suddenly being divided apart into different fates. One saved while the other is left, presumably uh, to destruction like Lot's wife. The important thing here is that, once again, in the mundane situations of everyday life, some will be rescued while others are not. And it is not important what you are doing at that moment. Two people are described as being in bed sleeping, and one is saved and the other is not. So it can't be what they were actively doing at that moment. What is important is where one's heart is focused. Are you attached to the world or are you bound to Christ? Finally, in verse 37, the last verse of this uh, section, the disciples ask a question that might seem kind of redundant to us. It feels kind of strange. They say, where, Lord? It's a strange question since Jesus already explained that it will be apparent to all and that they really don't need to be paying attention to the time and place. But Jesus answers, and he gives us, if I'm honest, a strange answer as well. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, I'm going to level with you. Just about every commentary I read had a different interpretation of this verse. Uh, one commentary I read said there are something like 25 different uh, interpretations among scholars. So what I'm going to do today is give you the one that I know to be true. I can't pretend to say that I know exactly the meaning of Jesus' words here, but I do want to give us some direction. So I'm going to talk about what I see to be the least likely explanation of what's happening, as well as the most likely, in, in my view, from what I read in those commentaries. The least likely thing I see happening here is that Jesus is just brushing off their question with a non-answer. Basically, like, them asking him this question and Jesus saying some sort of riddle that's really cryptic and makes no sense just to get them off his back. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus would do in a situation like this. It doesn't seem within his character. So that seems like the least likely thing. We can get that out of our minds. There is something he wanted them to get from his words here. What seems to me the most likely explanation is that Jesus is saying that only after the judgment comes will its location be made apparent. Just as only after the prey is dead that the vultures come around its corpse. Regardless, it seems that Jesus is communicating once again that the time and place 
do not matter. Instead, he wants his followers to remain faithful, not turning back towards the things of this world, but instead having their hearts set on Christ, who holds their eternal fate in his hands. Now, I titled this message, uh, Not Yet, So What Now? Because I wanted you to uh, have your attention drawn to all of the present implications of the kingdom. Even though Jesus is using uh, apocalyptic imagery to describe things we can't fully comprehend right now, we also see him clearly spelling out that his message is meant to shape how the disciples live. He's trying to encourage them to be faithful as they anticipate this day. He's giving them some of the tools they need to have in this in-between time of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a present reality. The kingdom of God is also coming in the future in such a way that we need to shape our lives to anticipate it. For those of you hearing me today who are followers of Christ, my encouragement for you is to question, are you living differently than the world around you? Not in such a way as simply to draw a line in the sand, but in order to bring people to a better understanding of the kingdom that we are a part of to a better understanding of the king who rules with love and grace. We are to be lights for this world, after all. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, I want to invite you to consider following him today. This message does have frightening implications for those outside the kingdom, certainly. And while I believe uh, that is a message that we need to hear Um, If Jesus said it, we should hear it, right? I don't want the reason that anyone uh, chooses to follow him today would be purely out of fear. Our king rules with divine justice, yes. But he also rules with love and grace. The justice of God and the love of God meet in the person of Jesus Christ, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life through whom is the only way to the Father. Just as Noah and Lot were delivered by God, those who are in Christ, who choose to follow him and surrender their very selves to him, will be saved. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. The king of the world who is currently reigning, and one day will make his reign as clear as lightning that stretches all the way across the sky for all to see humbled himself out of love and took the form of a servant, being born as a man so that as a man he could take upon himself the sins of the world as he died on the cross. And at that moment, the justice and love of God were displayed together at the cross as Jesus himself took on our sin so that we could be saved. Not only did he die, but he conquered death and rose again, and God the Father has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not an easy road, but to walk in faithfulness to Christ is better than any way of life that this world could offer. That is true. And the way of faith in Christ leads to eternity with him.
Would you join me in prayer today? Lord, we thank you for this gift of knowing you as our king. Lord, we pray that as we um, reflect on this message today, that you would continue to stir in our hearts a desire to make your kingdom known, to invite others in, to welcome those who are far from the kingdom, to make your love known to them. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to grow in our faith as we anticipate the coming day of your return. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would help us, especially in the moments when uh, the struggles of this life heighten our yearning to be with you. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength in those moments and help us to reflect your love and your grace uh, and your character into this world. Lord, use us for your will. Make your kingdom known through your people. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name.